You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. The show is brought to you in partnership with Progressive Masculinity and HeadTeacherChat.com. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I am Vicky Maguire. I am a leadership coach. I work mostly in education with school leaders and head teachers and I support them through coaching in various ways to improve their leadership and their well-being so that they can lead their schools even better and look after their staff. I do coaching in a variety of ways. I do one-to-one coaching, I do team coaching, I do coach training in schools and I can help you to set up a coaching community within your school. I've also created and I run group coaching programs for women leaders specifically and I've created the Women Lead Well Coaching Network to provide a supportive network for female school leaders. It's basically a shared space where women in education come together and support each other, encourage each other and champion each other. It's a place where they connect with like-minded women can share their challenges and just be reassured that they're not on their own really and at the moment I am offering free membership for the Women Lead Well Network because I know how challenging things are in schools at the moment so I'd like to offer you the opportunity to join the community and we've had lots of people signing up lately and joining us which has been absolutely brilliant. We had the half-termly coaching call a couple of weeks ago and it was fantastic to see some new faces there so if you would like to join the Women Lead Well network you can just email me it's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk and I will just add you to the network and you can start enjoying all the benefits of that if you would like to talk to me about any of the coaching that I offer or if you would just like to have a chat with me about coaching, what it could bring for you, what it could add to your school, I'd be very happy to have a chat with you. I love, I love, love, love talking about coaching. So if you would like to have a chat with me again, email me. It's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk. Or you can go and have a look at the website and see what I offer on there. And then you can just fill in the little contact form on there and get in touch with me. It's weleadwell.co.uk. Today's episode is sponsored by Schools UK and Schools UK provide supply cover insurance and they've been doing this for 24 years now. And what I love about Schools UK and why I'm really happy to be sponsored by them is that as part of their supply cover insurance, they offer an amazing wellbeing package. And as part of that wellbeing package, all of the staff in your school can access the benefits of it, not just teaching staff. You can get face-to-face counselling up to six sessions and I know with most other packages it's on the phone counselling this is face to face which I think is much more effective you can also access musculoskeletal services and that includes things like acupuncture and um, physiotherapy you probably get four to five sessions of that but the big big thing with this policy is that you get access to a GP on the day that you want it so if any of your staff need to see a GP they can go online first thing and make an appointment for that very day to speak to a GP online which I think is amazing because 
was just talking to someone the other day about, you know, saying his son needs to go to the opticians and he's not been for weeks and months because he just doesn't get around to booking an appointment. And I think it's the same with doctors. And it worries me that a lot of teachers or school leaders are not going to the doctor when they need to about something that could be quite serious. So I think that is absolutely brilliant. And they also have an employee uh, assistance program, which is fantastic too. And if you decide that you are going to buy your supply cover insurance with Schools UK, you can get a 10% discount if you use the code We Lead Well Podcast, as that could be really valuable to you. So who do we have on the show today? Well, we welcome Jenny Bowers from Purple Moon. And at this point, I just want to apologise for the sound quality of this interview. I've been having quite a lot of problems lately with my headphones and microphone. And unfortunately, the sound quality is not brilliant from my end. So if you can just bear with that, there is a lot to learn. Jenny is an expert in SEN. She was a SENCO and she's also an expert in safeguarding, having been a DSL. She's also been a head teacher and now she runs Purple Moon, supporting schools to effectively support SEM pupils and, and safeguarding. But she also is a supervisor and she talks with so much passion today about the importance of supervision for staff in schools, especially those who are responsible for safeguarding. You are going to love this interview and you're going to learn so much from it. So here she is, Jenny Bowers. Jenny Bowers, welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. How are you today? Thank you. I am really good. Really excited to be here. I think we're probably both just a little bit uh, stressed because we, first of all, it took us ages to get actually a face-to-face meeting, didn't it, when we could do the interview. And then we've just had a struggle with you with your camera, me with my headset. So let's just take a breath. <laughs> we are here. We are persistent. We are. We'll be fine. Um, so can you start us off by introducing yourself to the listener? Just give them a flavour of who you are, what you do, and a little bit about your journey in education. Thank you, I'd love to. So I am a reflective supervisor. That's my primary role. Um, I am also a leadership coach, but reflective supervision is where my real passion and purpose is. I am a former head teacher, deputy head. I was a Senko for many years. I was also the um, safeguarding lead for many, many years across a few different schools that I've worked in, all of them primary. Um, I've actually done safeguarding for such a long time. When I took the role on originally, my title was Child Protection Liaison Teacher, which was quite a mouthful, (laughs) but what we used to be called. So I much prefer safeguarding lead. Um, And I genuinely loved that part of my role. I loved being safeguarding lead, which does sound a little bit odd because it was incredibly stressful. There were tears, there was frustration, there was anger. But despite all that, or perhaps because of all that, I loved doing the role. Um, The same with being a Senko, and I combined those two roles as as a deputy head as well. So I did a lot of holding, I did a lot of meetings, I did a lot of discussions with um, families, with other staff. And when I became a head teacher, I enjoyed certain aspects of the role, but 
I felt that there was something missing within the system, which is the support, which is the opportunities for sharing doubts without being fearful that our doubts are going to be construed as um, poor management or lack of ability. And I felt that I needed to come out of the system to provide that for people within the system. So I had been lucky enough to experience some amazing supervision as a deputy head from a play therapist. And without her, she was called Kate, without her, I never would have understood what supervision was, wouldn't have experienced it for myself. So I realised that that was something that was really fundamentally missing in education and have set about working to be able to provide reflective supervision, in particular for safeguarding leads, for SENCOs and for senior leaders. I do believe, though, it would be useful for everybody in school, but that is my starting point. So the first thing I want to just talk about is the importance of the safeguarding role. Mm -hmm. What exactly does safeguarding mean, first of all? Because every time you have a job interview in a school, there's a safeguarding question, isn't there? And nobody really, I, I don't think in any interview I've done, anybody has really, apart from maybe one person, answered that question effectively. I think it's just been, well, if someone makes disclosure to me, this is what I would do. I'd deposit it, I'd make sure I, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they, they go through that, but it's bigger than that, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like, what is safeguarding? What does it mean? If someone's thinking, I, I think a lot of aspiring leaders listen to the podcast. If someone is thinking, mm, I wonder whether I want to be a, um, a DSL, what does it involve? What does it mean for someone who leads on safeguarding? Oh, start with an easy question, Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> well, I ask the big questions, Jenny. I always ask the big questions. <laughs> and and it, it's really interesting to hear it framed like that because and this is going, I can feel frustration rising from listeners because I'm going to start with it depends, which is a horrible way to answer a question. But safeguarding fundamentally is about are the children and young people safe? And we hear the phrase duty of care thrown at us all of the time. But fundamentally, how safeguarding started, and when you think what I said earlier is about, I was originally called child protection liaison teacher. Mm. It came from this notion that education staff spend a long time with children and children talk to us. And they talk to us with words, but they also talk to us in their actions and in their play. And there was this realisation that education staff hold a huge amount of information around children and around families because families also talk to education staff and we had we had social care and we had the police and they have got the statutory duties to do something but there was a recognition that actually there was so much stuff they didn't know so education was suddenly looked upon to say this is an area that has information so that's where it, it sort of started and it grew from. And originally it was about protection. Are our children protected? Are they safe? Are they protected from abuse? What that has now grown into with the safeguarding lead is, are our children safe? What do we as education staff notice and what are we being told? 
that makes us question, is life okay for these children? And the difficulty is the boundaries have become so blurred. And what we might see in a primary school and what a uh, safeguarding lead in a primary school holds, because sometimes there's one and an assistant in a primary school, whereas in a secondary school, there are a team and each person within that team may have a slightly different role. And it may be around attendance. It may be around, are they accessing the right support because they have a parent that's in prison? Are they accessing and able to discuss what they're thinking and feeling because it's been noticed that they are expressing um, potential mental health issues? So in primary, it's more about what do we notice? What are the parents telling us? What are the children telling us? What is sitting inside us that doesn't feel quite right? Because actually the majority of safeguarding aren't disclosures in the formal sense of a child tells us something. It's more around what are they looking like? And, you know, I think that's what a lot of people think, don't they? That there's going to be when you become a teacher, that the children are going to start all of a sudden disclosing things to you. And I was a secondary school teacher for 22 years and I don't think I ever had a child make a disclosure to me that I had to go and see the safeguarding lead about. There were other instances where I went and said, I'm a bit concerned about something that this child's written in, you know, because I was an English teacher, they write all sorts of stories or so it, it, it often is more, isn't it, that you're looking out for things rather than it being necessarily told to you. And that's my experience in a secondary school. Children oh, yeah. are not as open once they get to secondary school, are they? Yeah. Probably a lot more. And and I assume in a primary school it's not actual disclosure to the teacher. It would be probably in a classroom environment where a child puts a hand up and says, Well, such and such thing happened to me and but and you go, Well, that doesn't sound right. Mm. And I assume it's possibly more the things that they just share mm. in a discussion or in the class setting. Yeah, and sometimes it's another child telling us what another child has told them. And and I, I think it's about don't, if you have a gut feeling that something feels a bit funny, something doesn't feel quite right, and even if you can't properly articulate that, you are using your safeguarding skills to say, hold on, something doesn't feel quite right. I want to go and discuss this. And the person you would discuss that with quite often would be your safeguarding lead. So the safeguarding lead in effect sits on a lot of information because again, the disclosures quite often aren't made directly to the safeguarding lead. If there is a disclosure or a notion that something isn't quite right, they usually come from a different member of staff into safeguarding the safeguarding lead team and this is where the safeguarding lead role is incredibly tricky because there is judgment involved is what is being told you to you enough to make you reporting and where safeguarding without a shadow of a doubt has got harder is where this issue of thresholds come in so we are told if you get that gut feeling, if you hear something that doesn't feel right, report. And as education, we report, 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 report. What's happening is safeguarding leads are getting information 
And yes, yeah, some of it doesn't feel right. And it may be that child isn't isn't having breakfast or that young person is is appearing quite tired, acting out of character. The safeguarding lead has got to make a decision around, am I going to report this to social care? Is this something that we're going to fix, if you like, in-house? So if it's a, is this the first time the child hasn't eaten breakfast, in which case do we do we just give them some food? Or is there something else going on? And that may be having a bit of a chat through with the child or the young person. It might be having a conversation with a family member. And all of it is very much led by the safeguarding lead. Quite often, though, it is, no, this, this isn't feeling right. It's not right. I want to report it. This is something that needs to be shared. Because what we're also told in education a lot is even though we have a lot of information we don't always have all the information so by sh us sharing what we know with social care may add to something that social care already know so you 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 get in contact with social care and what is happening at the moment unfortunately is social care who are massively strapped for staff massively strapped for resources and money say it doesn't meet threshold can you deal with it or thanks for telling us, we'll make a note of it. So as the safeguarding lead, you're then still sat with this information. You're st still sat with a child or a young person that is struggling or unhappy or, you know, something's going on. So, so you've done your bit, which is reporting, but that we as education, we are still seeing these children every day. And so it's then that, that okay, what can we do as an organisation, as a school, what can we do for this child? What can we do for the family? Is it signposting the family to citizens' advice? Is it signposting them to benefit support? Is it signposting them to a food bank? Is it signposting a family member to domestic violence support? Is it putting some nurture and guidance and support in for that child? Is it all of the above? Jenny, do you think the thresholds have changed over the last let's say 13 years, <laughs> not being political, uh, I mean, maybe even over the last 20 years, because one one of my experiences as a, when I was an assistant I'm head, sorry. I was responsible for, um, that was Siri then getting involved, was that, you know, we, we had to do a house visit and we went there and oh my God, I was just, absolutely appalled at the state of the house that this child was living in he was the nicest kid you could ever want to meet he was so sweet and he was sleeping on a mattress that didn't it was just a mattress on the on board you know floor, floorboards no carpet or anything and no sheet on the mattress uh he wasn't being fed properly and it was you know well it doesn't meet the threshold and it was just that, that's one of the reasons I don't think I would be a set. I could have been a safeguarding lead because mm. you just see so many horrendous things, don't you? Mm. It would totally depress me. <laughs> I just, I just, it would take take yeah. over my my mind. I wouldn't be thinking yeah. about anything else. So, yeah. do you think the thresholds have changed? Because to me, that that's a family that needs extra help and support mm. but there was just nothing there for them mm. so the interesting thing around thresholds is yes the short answer is yes they've changed but actually from when i started when i started which is 
20 years ago, the thresholds have improved in some ways. Because, right. And partly that's because there is a great understanding of what impacts and affects child development and child emotional development. So around domestic abuse. So if I take domestic abuse for an example, and I've worked with, with families where domestic abuse and domestic violence has been occurring, there used to be the sense of, well, if it's not physical abuse and the children aren't seen it, it's not going to impact them. Now, if a professional said that now, they would be quite openly challenged on that on that phrase, because what we know now is that that's simply not true. Children are always aware of what's going on in their house and the emotional impact of, of domestic abuse is there. So in the sense of how domestic violence works within the thresholds, there has been improvements. We also went through a phase of um, what used to be called team around the child. Um, yeah. Some people still use the phrase team around the child. They talk about multi-agency multi support. So there has been a subtlety around what type of support can go in because they you, you used to go through um, what some areas called TAF or, or um, the before children in need. So the two phrases that most people are familiar with is children in need and child protection. And it was recognised that a lot of children didn't meet the threshold for children in need, but there was still support required. And different local agencies called that pre-child in need a slightly different layer. Um, so it might have been team around the child, it might have been TAF, team around the family, um, and there were many other phrases used. So in some senses, there was a widening of the thresholds and we were able to get support in that wasn't necessarily a social worker, but there was still support going in place. So in some areas, thresholds improved because it was, it doesn't meet this, but because there is this, this is support we can put in place. What's happened, I would say, over the last five years is that whole sphere has disappeared. So now it's, do they meet threshold for child in need? No, they don't. So then it gets pushed right back onto school to do the best they can. And to a certain extent, as a as a system, there has been the creation of this extreme difficulty for education because in the past as a system, there has been a little bit of flex. So we have been able to put things in place, either because we've been working with local charities or because we've had that extra teaching assistant, we've had that nurture group, we've had that breakfast club. We were able to put that support in place. What's happening now is schools simply don't have the budget, they don't have the resources, the local community don't have the charities, they don't have the resources. And that that wider circle has been lost. So families are struggling, families are getting um, reported or you know, referrals are being made 
social care can't manage them, they're going back to a very strict criteria of is this children in need? And they're saying no, because to them it doesn't mean. And a lot of people that are working in the system would be able to explain in much greater, greater detail what the thresholds are and what they look like. But what it feels like for the safeguarding lead is that the safety net has been lost. So some of those families that were getting through aren't. And unfortunately, in situations like you found yourself in, where social care or the police may have slightly different criteria. So does the child have a roof over the head? Yes. Does the child have a bed? Although it doesn't meet our standards, the answer would be yes. Is the child, what, what protective factors does that child have? We not may not be able to see them walking in on that home, home visit. Social care may believe there's other protective factors in place. So for them, it doesn't meet threshold. For us, because of our position of privilege and our expectation of what a child should be getting every day in regards to sleep, in regards to safety, in regards to food, in regards to clothes, clothing, our thresholds are different because our experience is different. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. And it's a really emotive subject this but they have to have thresholds in order to work out how they work with the most in need but we've lost and our I guess, safety net i guess that's where it's difficult for a, a safeguarding lead isn't it mm. and that's where supervision can come in because because the feeling of i suppose I suppose you feel impotent there, don't you? Like, you know something could be done for this child, but mm -hmm. nothing's being done. And you, I suppose, would feel really guilty in that there's quite a lot of weight on your shoulders Yeah. in terms of your responsibilities for that child. And is that something that can be explored through supervision? It is one of the biggest topics that is explored. Right. There is, and I'm so glad you brought the word up, guilt, because there is a lot of guilt because what we can explore in supervision is when you've done everything that is possible within your role, so you've absolutely pushed the boundaries of, of what your role is to get things in place for this family, and it still feels like nothing is changing, then guilt does appear because you feel like your good enough is not good enough. And, and what we can explore in supervision is how good enough is good enough and it's the best you can and that we do have to have a certain amount of trust in society in the wider system that while you're doing everything you possibly can there are also other things at play and other things at work and for some some children and for some families just knowing that you're trying will help them and that we can't fix it because that is not our job. Our job is to try and provide the facilities in order for it to be fixed. So supervision will explore guilt. It will explore frustration at the system um, and what that looks and feels like and how we 
don't have that frustration, that guilt playing into our family lives. It's absolutely okay to go home and have a really good meal and be well fed at home. You know, it's it's really okay to spend the weekend with your family out doing something lovely because you are entitled to live your best life. And during your work time, you are working to help those children get the best possible life. And I guess that's where supervision helps as well, isn't it? Because if you're not having supervision, you can be going out and be with your family, but totally not present with them, mm. thinking, oh, my God, this kid, John, he's at home now and he's what, what's he going to be doing? And mm. I, I assume that you're thinking, is he... Is, has he got enough to eat this weekend? Like that would be constantly preying on your mind, wouldn't it? Not just yeah. John, all the others who you know you know about and you're thinking about. So, I guess the supervision it's that form of sort of therapy or counselling, coaching, I guess, that helps you to work through those things so that you can be more present with your family rather than constantly thinking about you know all of the children who you feel responsible for. Yeah. Very much, very much so. And it's also, it's interesting because you brought up home visits. There has been a push. When I started as a CPLT, the idea of doing a home visit was totally out of my job description. If I even considered doing a home visit, my head teacher would have been, what on earth are you on about? We, we, we work in a school, we don't go to homes. Even five years later, that was different. I would go and knock on people's doors to, to, to just check in and say hi and you know acknowledge that we'd not seen them for a few days was everything okay but in some schools it was still no that's not part of the the job so it's there's a sense of kind of knowing almost what your job restrictions are what your job boundaries are so that we are maintaining the level of professionalism that enables us to recognise this is the job, this is my life, and maintain a bit of separation between the two. Because if we're not careful, it can become consuming. And what's interesting is there's two key periods for safeguarding leads. One is just before Christmas, because we all know the pressure that Christmas can put on family life. So quite often, a lot of referrals or a lot of concerns are raised, particularly in primary school, just before Christmas um, and trying to work out where support might be needed or targeted or um, families are experiencing real difficulty. And then the other one is just before the six weeks holidays. Because as you say, that notion of six weeks and thinking what is in place for these children, what can be done, how can I make sure that they're okay? And finding time to switch off and have holiday and have a break can be really tricky when you may be on call, which again is a new thing. When I started out, the six weeks holiday, we never got contacted. Now there is an expectation that if there's a child protection meeting or a children in need meeting or a referral comes in, that there will be somebody in school that is named that will that will be contactable over the holidays. If you're the only safeguarding lead in your school, if you're in a small primary school, that is really tricky. And I would argue that's not okay. So yeah. there is a real sense of 
how we get better as a, as a as a system at redefining what is actually acceptable what is the role of a safeguarding lead because it's kind of growing and filling all the gaps and and you know dsls are teachers um in in some secondary schools you may have a dsl team that does have a family support worker or somebody with a social care background um involved or pastoral leads and they can be incredibly valuable because they can also help explore what what the social care system may be thinking about certain cases um but sometimes they've left that system to come and work in education for a reason because they've seen where the gap is and so in supervision all of these things can be explored and unpicked and understood and also sometimes it is do you know what this case is worth another phone call this case is worth another push i do need to make sure that as the social care manager understands my depth of concern you know if you feel like you've had a brush off from a social worker talking through next steps in supervision can be very worthwhile because what the supervisor can bring is a different perspective because they're not emotionally attached to the case because what happens sometimes in the team is everybody becomes emotionally attached to the case and you need that perspective to pull you out a little bit to look at the whole picture and then hone on on what matters and supervision can do that it can pull out the perspective and then actually look at what is the concern what is that feeling that's going on here and how where can i take that next is this another push because there's also a concern isn't there in that instance that it's like whose responsibility is it then if something goes tragically wrong and you know you've been in touch with social care and they've said no no it doesn't meet the threshold you know you, mm. you do something about it and then something goes horribly wrong like who I think there's a fear, isn't there? Mm. That was one of the things, Jenny, that put me off being a head teacher mm. because I didn't want the ultimate responsibility of a DSL coming to me to say, "This has happened. I'm not really sure what to do. I'm thinking maybe this or this," and me as a head teacher having to go, "Right, okay, let's do this," and that being the wrong decision. Mm. That's an awful lot of responsibility, isn't it? And I think. I think as time goes on, schools are taking on more responsibility mm. because there's not, you try and bring social care, try and speak to a social worker, probably most of the listeners who have tried doing that will realise how difficult that can be, mm. like to get hold of someone even in, in some instances. And then you're left with a, you know, a really pressing safeguarding situation to deal with. Yeah. on your own and you're making these they are life or death decisions sometimes aren't they mm -hmm. or, or they're a decision that's going to have a massive impact on this young person possibly for the rest of their life mm. and that is a big burden of responsibility isn't it on a, on a safeguarding lead on head teachers yeah. who are making these really important decisions yeah in in really difficult circumstances the fear of a serious case review is is ever present um and there are some people within the system that have have been through them and one thing that always comes back to me is if you do the best you can 
with the knowledge you've got in front of you at the time, no decision is a wrong decision. You may just not have the outcome that you want. And, and even though that just feels, or you're just being a bit pedantic, that's just language, that is a way of reframing it. So it's, have you made the best decision you could with the information you've got in front of you? The answer will be yes. The next step is, have you recorded and shared that decision making? So if your listeners have, have got a, a situation where they, um, they've been told it doesn't meet threshold or they are unhappy or unsure about why decisions have been made because they don't feel right, first of all, share it um record it and there's some great systems out there um that are quite bureaucratic but they are a safety net for for, for schools things like cpoms they're not the only one out there but systems like that but it's also it's okay to send that email to social care to the team manager to say this is this is what we have this was the response i received these are my concerns the key in that kind of response is in some ways the most difficult one it's about maintaining that professionalism and so what i say is move from a move into a space of professional curiosity so in a sense it's figuring out why are you feeling so angry why are you feeling frustrated why are you so concerned and then framing that in a sense of professional curiosity to that other agency, so to the social worker or to the police or to your CEO in the trust or to whoever to say, and be quite articulate in how you set out, this is, this is the information I have, this is what I did with it, this is the response I got, and it's almost saying this is what I'm curious about, so it's I'm wondering, why this didn't meet threshold in what area did this not meet threshold i'm just wondering why the decision was made before we hear more from jenny i'd like to tell you a little bit about our partner head teacher chat head teacher chat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning how to support parents and the many issues that come with leading a school the aim of head teacher chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role they do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first school leader planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www headteacherchat.com. Headteacher chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. Because it appears that nothing is happening. And so you are then enabling that other agency to give you an informed response rather than responding to your feelings of frustration and anger, which then can make another person quite defensive because I think in a lot of the work that 
I've done, and I have been very angry with social care, don't get me wrong, I have been incredibly angry at social care, but it's trying to remember that you're angry and frustrated at the system. It might not yeah, be the person. It's not the people. And, and that when we get angry and frustrated, how we present with those high emotions how that other person responds to them is going to be quite defensive and also going to bring high emotions in them as well so trying to take a breath step back out of it work out why you've got why this is really touching your buttons why this has made you so cross and then framing in it in a way that enables them to respond to it but i will reiterate that this is these are people human errors occur because we're all people but if you are grappling with a tough decision don't grapple with it on your own and you can only make the decisions making the best decision you can with the information you have in front of you at the time i guess it's about just making sure everything is recorded like any action that you take at all is recorded that's why systems like cpoms are so good isn't it because yes. You can record everything there in one place. You can, you know, copy and paste everything into into CPOM so that there's a there's a record of everything yes. that you've done. There was an in, there was an incident that was in the press. Someone had been taken to a, a panel because it was a deputy head teacher and she there was an incident with a glue gun. Which mm. Let the parent know. Would you just say let the parents know at every stage, keep them informed of what's of what's happening and what you're doing and just make sure that that is just a rule of thumb keep the parents involved as well. so i'm going to come back to that dreaded phrase of it depends right <laughs> because i i don't i don't think we can be that subjective and also there is an element of humanness that genuinely with everything that goes on in a busy classroom of every single minute and every single day there will be occasions when we forget and I don't mean we forget big things like disclosures or, or yeah. things like that, but, you know, a child scraping their knee, a child burning themselves on a glue gun, whether or not, you know, it's the whole thing again. Is it major? Is it minor? If it requires a first aider, then notification to parents. But there's this whole sense of you do your best. So having open lines of communication with parents is vital. Being able to have the strong relationship so that if, if something a bit difficult or a bit challenging is happening, yes, you need to be able to have those conversations with them. But if you're talking around areas like um, neglect or emotional abuse, some of those conversations are really tricky. So it's not don't have those conversations, it's work out how to have those conversations and be prepared to listen. training on that, don't they? Yeah. Because they are difficult conversations. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a hard conversation to have with someone, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and you need training in it. And and also you need, you need, you do need training in it, but a lot of it just comes back to, relying on on your humanness your ability to to talk and crucially your ability to listen because we do carry our bias and our thoughts you know i was incredibly privileged to grow up in an incredibly loving house you know i had i had two parents at home 
Um, and I'm not saying it was idyllic and blissful, but I, I come from a place of privilege in the sense of I grew up in a very strong and secure family. So my expectations of what childhood should be like, I want every child to experience most of what I experienced as a child. The reality is, 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 is that can't occur for many different reasons. So there are times in conversations with families when we may be thinking about neglect, we may be thinking about emotional abuse. We need to be able to listen to what the parents are telling us as well as the child, as well as the other siblings potentially a grandparent that's around as well and there is that opportunity to to figure out what is going on and support the whole family where necessary or find the right support not necessarily the school does the support but find the right support there are some instances where a safeguarding lead may choose not to involve the parents, which is where the it depends bits come in. Sometimes it's going to social care first and having that discussion. And quite often the first thing social cares will say is, have you informed the parents? If you have a robust reason for not informing the parents, social care will accept that and will discuss what happens next. Um, there has been an occasion where I wanted to speak to social care before I spoke to parents, A, to make sure I wasn't going to say anything that was prejudicial, to make sure that social care didn't have any information that I didn't know so that I might impact on something else that was going on. And also because what I was concerned about was that if I phone social care, the parent is then going to turn up at the door, demand that they take the child. And there's a whole difficulty there about we can't keep the children in school. We are not legally allowed to keep the children in school. So it was kind of, I want to talk to somebody at social care first to plan how and when the, when the parents are informed before social care. And there has been an occasion where I didn't inform the family and it was social care that informed the family. So in an ideal world, there'll be really effective, powerful um, two-way conversations the reality is, is that can't always happen, but it doesn't mean you can't try because communication so really works. There's a couple of things coming up for me. Um, the first one is that when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, wow, if you're the safeguarding lead, you have to know an awful lot, don't you, about external agencies, charities, mm -hmm. who is going to be best placed to work with this family, the schools has a responsibility for, and, and social care have said, no, it doesn't meet the threshold. All the signposting that you have to do, or people you have to get in touch with, you mm. must have to have a wealth of knowledge in terms of all the different agencies and charities that you could engage with. Yeah, and this is why I loved my job. <laughs> and it sounds really strange, but this, this is the bit that I loved. And I think this is the bit that, it's really important for safeguarding leads and other people within school not to become isolated. Um, and what I mean by that is there are some really powerful networks out there. There are some really good um, local networks. There are um, charities working in areas and 
for whatever reason, schools don't know about them. And partly because they have they think that schools would know about them because they've informed somebody really high up or because they're advertising in a particular um, charity or social enterprise website. And, and so what I say to safeguarding leads is actually take a moment to look beyond your school walls. Um, find out where your local community foundation is and who they can tap into for you um when your local authority or your multi-academy trust put on dsl networking so not the training but the networking attend i mean i sometimes it can be really hard to walk out of the door of school to go and spend an hour um or to log on to a zoom call if it's still doing via zoom it's so valuable because the school down the road's dsl team the week before may have just found a charity that provides hygiene products. Those networking events is the opportunity for the safeguarding leads across the whole community to say, did you know about these people? I've just managed to get a family supported here. So share what you know and what you know is on your doorstep, but also listen to what other people are saying. And don't be afraid to ask. You know, guys, what, what charities are around you? Who's provided your summer school activities? What else do they do? And, and as a head, you have to encourage your DSL to yes. go to those, don't you? you? I mean, not force them, but, you know, yeah. make it. And this is where I think DSL and SENCO have to work together as well, isn't it? Because yeah. I think as, as a SENCO or TAs, often, you know, they will be party to a lot of information, won't they? That you know they need to communicate with the DSL, and they also know of a lot of external agencies support their networking as well. So you need to have you, you do need to have a good relationship between your Senco and your DSL. Sometimes it's the same person, isn't it? Wow, what a job that must be <laughs> in a small primary school. It could well be the same person, yes. couldn't it? Yeah. But in a bigger in a bigger school or a high school. You need to make sure that you've got really good, a really good relationship between the DSO and your SENCO. Yes, definitely. And it did make me smile when you saying that because, yeah, I'd be quite often having conversations with myself because when I was a deputy <laughs> head, I, I did. And I had that lovely title, inclusion lead and also pupil premium. And so, so there are certain people in school that do gather those titles um, and, and particularly in primary sitting that sitting those multitude of chairs and it can be a little bit trickier for them because they are then just talking to themselves which is where the networking externally yeah. becomes so much more crucial but you're absolutely right in these bigger schools where you have a safeguarding lead and a senko finding time and space to have those professional discussions as a school to say what do we know who do we know what do we not know? How are we going to find out? And I say the phrase professional discussions because it's very easy and sometimes needed to go and have a rant and get a few things off your chest. You know, there is a there is a place for them and particularly safeguarding in Zenkos, they quite often will be ranting or concerned or frustrated about the same thing, which, you know, quite often is external agencies. So there is a place for that, but there is also a place for saying, okay, 
what do our families currently need? What are we seeing? So if I go to my network, I'll ask this question. You go to your network and ask this question and we'll see what comes up. And I, and I think what can happen as well is sometimes a safeguarding lead can tap into something, a charity or an organisation or a website that's providing res resources and they can think that's great. But if they then say to the Senko, I've just found this resource online or I've just found this, this charity working locally, that cross-pollination in the Senko being able to go, actually, that would be really beneficial for some of my families as well, some of these families that I'm meeting with, because there are families that don't cross-pollinate. So there are families that will... will um, explore special educational needs let's say they may have a child with a with a learning difficulty they don't require the kind of safeguarding support or the social care support however that website with that resource maybe it's about mental health maybe it's about supporting families maybe it's about how to access certain funds would be really vital so you're right there needs to be those discussions that's actually saying, did you know this? Have you heard of I think, these? I think there's also, like when you talk about professional discussion, I think the meetings need to be timetabled, probably mm. they need to be calendared, and the head teacher or the deputy, if you have a deputy pastoral deputy responsible for inclusion or whatever, needs to be at those meetings. Yeah. And it's a data sharing meeting. And then I think what you what you can get out of those meetings is that children don't drop through the net. You can look at your most vulnerable pupils. And then we can see any who've come up as safeguarding concerns. Do they need some support from SEN? Is there something that's a bit more concerning there? And like you know, likewise, vice versa. If we've got SEN pupils, mm. are there any that have got we've got safeguarding our child protection concerns about, and we can share that information. Yeah. And we can make sure that nobody sort of drops through the net. So having a real strategic approach to it, and having that strategy where meetings are calendared there's an agenda to the meeting we've got a list of pupils you know we look at specific mm -hmm. pupils and we explore how they're progressing and what their needs are so it, it does take on much more of a, a structured approach and as a, as a head teacher or deputy you have to take the responsibility for that don't you in providing time space and yeah. actual commitment to making sure those meetings happen yeah absolutely and crucially as well you know, there's a reason why we say a problem shared is a problem halved. You know, reducing, I I find it so frustrating when Senkos or DSLs talk about loneliness and isolation. And when they talk about it, it's a very real feeling for them. But it's actually saying it doesn't have to be that way. That even if there's just two people in that meeting, two people in that conversation, so I would have those meetings, we'd call them inclusion meetings. And because I wore the multitude of hats, I would have them with the head teacher. Yeah. And part of it was actually the relief of my head teacher saying, Yeah, do you know what? We do need to be dig a bit deeper there. It's not just you. And there is something about being able to have those conversations and they're still very professional. It's not about breaking confidentiality. You don't need to go the, into the ins and outs of every last detail, but it's actually saying this family are thriving. I'm really pleased. Let's just make sure that we can maintain it. 
this family have just popped up on the radar. Does anybody else know what's going on? Where might we want to signpost them to? Who's going to take the lead on that? And particularly when you are those bigger teams and you've got the assistant DSLs or the attendance officer or whatever coming to those meetings as well. It's them then saying, yeah, I've got capacity. I can take that. And I think crucially in those meetings as well, it also just helps having that number. So if one half term you're talking about 10 families and the next half term you're talking about 20 families, what is that telling you about your community? And also, what is that telling you about as a head teacher? What is that telling you about the workload of your SENCO or your safeguarding lead or, or your pastoral team? So those meetings can work on very different levels. They can be a good shared experience so that people can feel like things are happening and they are also very good strategic because it's about the knowledge for the head teacher of what is going on under the under their whole umbrella it's not necessarily then for the head teacher to go and fix it all but it's about building that awareness of what's going on in the community and who is best placed and it may be just the head teacher then saying right okay i've got my head teachers forum next week i'm going to see if what's going on in my school is also happening at the school down the road and the school across, you know, and, and having those professional discussions at that level also ena enables greater information sharing. So it's not sharing about a family per se, but it's saying we've really noticed some of our children are really struggling with hygiene. We think it's to do with cost of living. Anybody know anywhere that that um, that provides toothpaste and and soap and things like that, you know? I think as well, the other layer of this now is the rest of the staff in the school. Because that's where I think things slip through the net, isn't it, sometimes? Because the requirements for staff training or CPD in terms of safeguarding training every two years and everybody has to read the Keeping Children Safe in Education and sign it to say they've done it. I just think it's not it's not really enough, is it? And I think it, it's caused problems in some schools because things have slipped through the net. And I think it, it's often because teaching staff have not been trained well enough in what their specific responsibility is with regard to safeguarding. And I feel like once every two years, if you just tick in that box and going, yeah, yeah, we did the day's safeguarding training, we brought someone in from the local authority and everybody's had the training. As a leader, though, it's your responsibility to say, right, OK, what did staff learn on that day? How do I know now that they've had that training day and they've got the knowledge that they can apply in their classroom and that if something comes up, they would know specifically what to do about it and how to deal with it. And that's why I think that question, coming back to what we said at the start about the question in interviews, you know, what's your safeguarding responsibility? Well, if someone makes a disclosure, I'll tell the DSL, blah, 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 listen. And well, that, that's not it, is it? And I think some safeguarding training makes people feel like that. that's yeah. that's just the, the, the nature of it or what it is, and it isn't. And then with the, what gets me with the read the Keeping Children Safe in Education document and sign to say you've read it, well, I can sign to say I've read it. I've taken it on board. Has it sunk in? Do I know what the key bits of it are? Who's who's checking my knowledge in that? So 
that that level of making sure staff are well trained, have the knowledge, and they can apply it in different situations is really important, isn't it? And as a leader, you're responsible for that. Yeah, it's it's crucial, and I think a lot of this also comes back to that whole sense of listening to when we think something's not right and and I think there's something here for teachers that we've we've got into the danger of through like reading Kipsy, Keep Children Safe in Education or doing that one day's training is that the expectation that safeguarding always, is always going to look like this but actually you noticing that a child is not not behaving in the way or not acting or not looking in the way that you would usually expect them to that is that that nagging thought of is everything okay with them that is you safeguarding in action so it may be i'm wondering if everything's okay with that child i'm going to go and have a conversation with them or i'm going to watch and observe over the day and then have a conversation with them both of those are perfectly good also there's something going on. Um, I'm going to go and speak to the learning mentor who's an assistant DSL. I'm going to speak to the DSL. I'm going to speak to my uh, mentor if you're an ECT. You know, just saying, I've got this little niggle, I'm not sure, is really powerful. And unfortunately, the way education has become, it's very hard for teachers to say, I'm not sure because we're supposed to be the font of all knowledge with, you know, the high stakes accountability has led to this notion of we should just know. So being able to say to somebody else, I'm not sure, I think there's something going on, is opening that door to safeguarding to then either keep a very watchful eye over that. It may be to look back over past history on CPOMs to see if there's any patterns. It's, it's about alerting somebody else in school that has a bit more experience a bit more training a bit more knowledge that something might be going on here and i think one of the most powerful things around training and ongoing training for safeguarding in a very crowded cpd setting is actually the use of case studies so yeah. actually presenting children uh, presenting teachers and teaching assistants and learning mentors and midday supervisory assistants don't ever forget your midday staff you know your after school club staff um whether they're employed by you or not you know just make sure every once in a while staff yeah, as well yeah very staff much staff. so yeah caretaker it's amazing how much caretakers and site staff pick up you know every once in a while dropping in a case study and spending 10 minutes of a staff meeting you know, read this case today. What would you do? There's no right or wrong answer. What What's your little red flag? And I think then you get an you get if you do that over time, you get a build up of these are the types of things that we might see, mm. and there'll be things that are specific to your school that you will see. County lines, for example. Yeah, that might be something that in this primary school near me is really very unusual and not something yeah. that you would be worried about at all. But if you go down the road into Salford something that you've, you've got to be really vigilant with so recognizing as well that safeguarding like you were saying with heads going to a the heads meeting seeing what's happening locally and recognizing that well actually we've got it looks like there's something coming up here i need to go back to my school and say right we need to look out for this because mm -hmm. it seems to be 
on the increase. And when you build up that, I think using real case studies, taking the names away, anonymizing them, that have actually happened in your school, it creates a real, it's an actual real situation, isn't it? And people are going, oh, these are the things that have happened here. Mm. Oh, okay. And they can start then thinking, I need to look out for that then, or that might be something that I might notice in a child. Mm. You get a much there, not necessarily experiencing that mm. firsthand. Yeah. They have an experience of all the different types of things that have taken place within the school and it gives them some it gives them some experience to base their actions on moving forward doesn't it i think that's really really useful and i think the crucial thing here is is we're not talking about gossiping about families no. because that's not okay but this is where it comes back to that professional curiosity something inside you has alerted you to the fact that something doesn't feel right it might be something that's said, it might be something, an action that's that children or the family or, you know, it can present in so many different ways. But it's that thing inside you that's just going, something isn't right. And, and quite often we can't quite put our finger on it. The crucial bit is don't ignore it. But the professional curiosity is going to that other person in school that has got a bit more experience, that has got a bit more training and going, something isn't right something isn't you know has anybody else mentioned this family to you there's just something here but i can't figure it out and what and if i had somebody come to me and say that sort of thing to me i would go back and look at previous history with this family if it was there if that's see if there's any patterns i would create a situation so that that teacher could have a bit of space to figure out maybe what it is that's going on and it may be right okay tomorrow you know let, let's find some space for you to be able to have a one-to-one -one with that child or you know tomorrow I'll make sure I go out on the yard and, and you know watch what they're like coming in I'll go and have a conversation with the parents and see if you know see if anything comes up there it's about creating and fostering that culture where when a staff member says I'm not sure that there is that there is action that takes place and that action and might I, be low level or it might be really high okay you've mentioned that family i know there's a lot going on thank you for telling me that helps build the picture and i also think there's it works through the way around you know for the dsl or the deputy dsl to have the relationships with staff where they can pop in or they can talk to them and say have you got any concerns is everything everything been all right this week or is there anything that you're a bit concerned about or a bit worried about you know just tell me let me know and building those relationships so that you can have those conversations with staff to say is everything okay easier in a primary school than it is in a in a high school but even there i think as the dsl or deputy dsl you have relationships with the heads of year mm -hmm. or with your pastoral leads heads of year then you know as the SLT lead or DSL, you make sure your heads of year are having that contact with their form tutors to say everything okay, nothing, there's nothing that you're concerned about, any worries that you've got, yes. anything that just might have set alarm bells ringing. Because I think, especially in a, in a secondary school, when you're not with the children all day, you can forget things. Mm. You can see something in form time and think, oh, I need to maybe mention that. And then five lessons later, it's gone out of your head. And it doesn't 
actually come up again for another few weeks by which time you know anything could have happened yeah. so by having that sort of line of dsl make sure heads of year bring things to them and that heads of year are that point of contact and going out to form tutors to actually say have you got any concerns anything weird happened or well, whatever it is yeah you get the two-way communication don't you yeah then you know you're asking but people are coming to you you're less likely again it's about just covering our bases isn't it making yeah. sure that nothing falls through the cracks yeah and also somebody's not left building anxiety or concern alone because that is not healthy for anybody so knowing that they can go and say i'm not sure or i've noticed this is this unusual you're not internalizing and building up a something into a real anxiety for you and i think the other the flip side of that the really crucial thing as well is is and i have unfortunately seen this when i have gone to work at a school where there was a sense of oh that's this community that always happens in this community a normalizing of certain things because that always happens and it's actually having that ability to say the community struggles in this particular area whether it be drugs whether it be county lines whether it be alcohol whether it be um poverty and still having the ability to go we know that this is impacting 60 percent of our families but actually it's it's still not okay yeah. Now, the safeguarding becomes a whole different approach because then it's more of a community approach and working with other agencies to support the community. But it's also still spotting those individual families and what can be done on that individual family. And I, and I think that's where we have to guard against feeling of overwhelm when you're working in an area where there is significant poverty or significant difficulty with drugs. It can feel insurmountable. And it can feel overwhelming and again in in supervision that's a space to actually unpick and explore and look through the kind of the little steps and recognizing the little steps that you're making when you're working in situations like that there is no magic wands nothing is going to change overnight but actually by constantly striving for it to be better you are doing something and i think we forget that that just in striving and working towards it, it being better, you are doing something and supervision can help manage those feelings as well. Brilliant. What a great place to finish because we've been talking for ages. And as per usual, I could just talk all day. Me too. Um, so, <laughs> supervision, I 100% I agree with you, is absolutely essential. And, it, you know, every school should have be working with a supervisor. Some schools will say they can't afford it. It's the, it's the cost, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I would say there are some things you have to invest in. And number one is your staff. Mm -hmm. And what you don't want is to lose a DSL because they're overworked or stressed or, you know, they're really experienced and all of a sudden decide I can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, then you've got to train someone else. So it, it's it's actually an investment in in your staff isn't it and it's, it's yeah. looking after and it's caring for your staff and it's really important if people would like to find out more about supervision and the work that you do where can they find you jenny so um 
my website is um, purplemoon.uk. Um, I'm at Jenny at purplemoon.uk. Um, I love questions, as you can tell. <laughs> I'm very open to, to answering questions. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn and there's some amazing people doing um, fantastic things um, around supervision because 22,000 schools out there. So it's all about collaboration and working together. So um, that there's, there's a whole community of us out there really working to bring supervision to the fore for educators from educators. Um, so if you find me on LinkedIn as well and, and, and see some of the different things that we're discussing and talking about on there. Um, and I would say just like you, it is an investment. When you look at how much money it costs to recruit, to retain, to cover sickness absence, um, your staff are the most important resource you've got. I know in primary school, we bang on about glue sticks a lot because they are very important <laughs> in primary school, but you need your staff and you need your staff to be healthy. And that's not just you need them to be healthy and happy because they're looking after children. You need them to be happy and healthy because that's an, that's something that everybody should have. You, you, your job, your job should make you joyous. You should love your job, and having supervision enables you to stay connected to your purpose and the joy of working with children and young people and and staying connected to it. So. It is about happy, healthy teachers support happy, healthy children, but also happy, healthy teachers. Who wouldn't want that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jenny. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I know that for a lot of you, if you're in roles that are not pastoral, one of the really scary things about going into senior leadership is having to deal with more safeguarding incidents and if safeguarding is something that you've not chosen specifically to be your focus that can be quite daunting when you're taking on the role of a senior leader because you know that you're going to have more safeguarding incidents to deal with they are going to come your way because you're a senior leader but i hope that listening to jenny speak there has helped you to just get a better grasp of what safeguarding actually involves and a little more about how you might go about making some of those safeguarding decisions that you might have to make if you're a school leader. Now, Jenny also talks about supervision, and I cannot stress the importance of supervision. It's really traumatic to take on the role of safeguarding lead. What you hear, what you deal with can be very upsetting and really emotionally draining. Like we were saying, the things that you take home with you at the end of the day. So having supervision is absolute key so i would highly recommend you get in touch with jenny or someone else who who can offer you supervision if you are undertaking that role or if you're a senior leader and you have to deal with quite a number of safeguarding incidents that is all we've got time for today if you want to talk to me about any of the coaching packages that i offer or just want to have a chat with me about coaching you can email me it's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk and don't forget to join the women lead well network you will get a very warm welcome if you do that i will speak to you next time take care of yourself take care of your staff and lead well This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Progressive Masculinity and headteacherchat.com.